0: So Ole, last time we talked about photography and then you asked me uh, how many pictures I take when I was on my last holiday. Yes, I did. And today we're gonna talk about aircraft. So the most obvious question then would be to ask,
1: how many times did you fly? Ooh, that's a hard question. Uh, I made a round trip in France when I was like very young, but uh, I think that was only for like 50 minutes. So that's one time I went to London to Rome to Malta and to to Lisbon so that's four times back and forth four times two is 8 plus that one is 9 however tomorrow I'll be heading to Athens ah so that will make 10
0: okay so do you have any idea how how much fuel your airplane burns during that time Oh, I do not want to know.
1: <laughs> so I, I, I know there's a Wikipedia a Wikipedia page on uh, mileage. I think it's called that way for aircraft as well. Oh. Quite some, actually.
0: Okay. So I I did some calculations because I knew you were heading off to Athens uh, tomorrow, and I just want to guilt trip you. So here we go. A uh, average seven three seven eight hundred. Um, okay. Spends about thirteen. Uh, 3,200 liters per hour. Okay, so
1: it's like three hours of flight. Yeah, it's three hours and 10 minutes. Six hours when you would take the return trip into account as well.
0: Yeah, okay, so I only took the one trip, the one way. Uh, so that equates to about ten thousand, uh, one hundred thirty-three liters during the entire flight. Ouch. And um, if you divide that by number of passengers per kilometer, then you get only... 0.03 liters per passenger per kilometer. So then it suddenly sounds pretty good. That's not yeah. that
1: much. Yeah, I made a video on that as well, as you might know. I compared a regular aircraft to some cars, some, uh, you know, modern cars. And if you have one or two people in your car, uh, an aircraft is actually less damaging to the environment uh, than a, a car as well. Less damaging is not the correct word, but it uses less fuel it's different hmm. fuel so that can have an effect of course
0: okay so i wonder uh, what kind of aircraft you compared it to because what i noticed is that for example the 747 the the big one with the big bulge on top yeah uh, that one seems to be uh consuming uh,
1: let me think i think it's even less or i think it should be less as well but i'm not certain what i did in my calculation i think i took a 737 as well
0: okay but
1: I would have to check that out. It's been a year, I think.
0: Ah. But the interesting thing to me is, so I, I looked up the uh, miles per gallon for a Toyota Prius. Uh huh. Which is uh, 52 miles per gallon, and that's weird units, so I translated that. <laughs> you
1: had to for that to, to standards, <laughs> you know, like we've talked about earlier.
0: Right, uh, so that is uh, that equates to 4.52 liters per 100 kilometers. or So
1: that's like 1 in 20 one and twenty-two.
0: Uh, yeah, something like that. Or calculated in liters per kilometer per passenger, it's zero point zero zero nine. So that. And what
1: was the the aircraft again?
0: Zero point zero three instead of zero point zero zero nine for the Toyota Prius.
1: Okay, this is hard. But what is the the ratio between the two? It's about three in that case.
0: It's almost zero point zero one.
1: Yeah, although zero, zeros make it hard to. Yeah, I'm sorry. so
0: it's about uh, th- three times less liters
1: okay that does not make such a significant dif- difference but still but still
0: this of course is a Toyota Prius so it, it doesn't uh, spend so much fuel so yeah that's um so that's some numbers
1: before we uh, that's a uh, fun fact number one of today but I've got a few more you know that oh sure go ahead <laughs> okay um, uh, TL- TLDR China 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 okay (laughs) (laughs) all right i want to start like 2500 years ago in china like i mentioned uh kite flying have you ever wondered about that that is uh oh well 2500 years old actually i
0: i would never have thought it would be that old but on the other hand i guess it makes sense because how many times do you flung something up in the air and it stays afloat and you want to wait can I control that?
1: Especially a piece of paper or right. plastic. Something lightweight, it will, it will just float away. And if you can, can attach it to a string, well, you've got yourself a kite.
0: Yeah, with, with some structural support, of course, but yeah. Yeah, of
1: course, it's not that easy, but it, but it's a start. And the Chinese guys were actually quite smart, they, they did it for fun, I guess, but they also used it to measure distance, to test the wind, and to communicate. Wait and also, fun fact, number two to
0: lift man <laughs> Wait, could could you go back and and uh explain to me the the first and the third use for kites to test the wind you know uh, you mean no, you said to measure distance
1: oh yeah, that was the first one i mentioned uh, i I do not know ex- oh, actually okay. I haven't <laughs> looked into that, but I guess uh to communicate, you can use it just to to make a sign like uh something is happening and you uh, can propagate a sign by um, by lighting a fire was also uh, one of the ways right. you could use uh, to propagate a signal. And I guess uh, flying a kite could do the same. Okay, yeah, I see. Anyway, uh, the fourth one was most interesting to me to live man, because uh, <laughs> men carrying kites, kites were uh, invented around 500 600 years uh, after the birth of Christ, like uh, to use for military, civil or punishment measures. Oh, but but did it ever work? Uh, I guess so. Like how how big would your kite have to be? Uh, Well, quite severe I guess, like uh, two or three square meters
0: so small editorial here there is actually a wikipedia page on men lifting kites and you should look at look it up it's actually pretty fun to read through but sadly it doesn't really give any numbers on when or i mean how big the kites were but judging from the pictures it's anywhere between like let's say three four or five square meters or so
1: legend says it was also used in japan Well, men carrying kites, but uh, they were actually a bit smaller because they forbid it. Because you can imagine a lot of people died using uh, (laughs) men carrying kites.
0: Oh, right. That reminds me of a story. I think it was uh, Mythbusters where they tested this uh, myth where some guy used a weather balloon to lift himself up in a chair. And uh, the myth goes that he was, I don't know, drinking beer or anything. And by the time he was done, he was drunk and he didn't know he was already I don't know, a kilometer up or something. And he didn't know how to go down, so he died.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a weird story. Was it busted or was it uh, fireball? It was
0: totally confirmed. You don't even need uh, weather balloons. I think you can use big helium balloons as well, but you can totally lift yourself up. The most obvious choice, of course, would be to have many balloons and take a gun so you can shoot several down. And then you can slowly (laughs) go down again, but yeah.
1: I was uh, still. I know you said uh, multiple balloons, but I still had one big balloon in my mind. And when you said gun, I was thinking about <laughs> shooting that only one balloon you had. I right. Think. Yeah. And so. for for a split second, I thought that's the most stupid idea you could <laughs> you could think of. And then it just popped into my mind uh, that you said multiple balloons. Right. So I'm
0: not, and I'm not entirely sure if if the guy indeed used one balloon or not. But even then, it's
1: like. It's a stupid story. It's quite funny. (laughs) Anyway, China—they did some uh, some other pretty interesting things as well. Like uh, they had a toy, which is sort of a small helicopter, in uh, around 400 BC. It's called the bamboo kofta, and uh, it, it was a toy for children, also in China. And another thing was the sky lantern, and we still use that today. Uh, well, not today. Mostly huh. uh, in uh, New Year's Eve, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Those paper balloons with a small lamp or a or candle, which lifts the the sky lantern. There. Let me see. What was it called again? It had another name. Wish balloons.
0: Yeah, wishing balloons. Yes, and
1: yeah, that was what I was thinking
0: about. These little buggers even work so well that they are prohibited in the Netherlands. You can't use them anymore because they cause danger for uh, aviation. Yeah, I heard about that. How, how 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 can they go? Like a kilometer or something? Maybe even higher, because if it's uh, well, if it's yeah, a kilometer or two, then if you're around a major airport, that can already be uh, pretty significant danger yeah especially in
1: a small country like uh like the Netherlands right you're always close to Amsterdam. let me see on average they can reach a height of approximately three thousand feet, so that's well a kilometer
0: okay yeah
1: huh interesting okay now let's uh let's skip China for a second let's go to Spain Because what is the most obvious uh way to start flying if you look at nature, you would think well. Let's uh, imitate a bird, you know? Yeah. Big wings, feathers. Fall down a cliff. Yeah. Uh, so they started doing that. Uh, what they actually did is uh, they jumped off a building. All oh, right. right. Yeah. In uh, 852 AD. Um, oh, that... Not the most smart idea. Well, you got to start somewhere, right? I mean, what else yeah. could you do? The dude uh, who did it first, well, the first recorded one, Armin Furham for man i mean he uh he did survive uh with injuries because uh his big wings did slow him down but uh i would not recommend that how so how how from how high did he jump i was wondering about that as well but i just could not find it oh okay ah, well, i shame. guess several meters like 10 20 30 maybe couple stories yeah yeah well Don't do that, please. (laughs) I'm not very
0: um, inclined to try that now. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad.
1: Another uh, quite cool idea, which is quite old, is of course Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. And what you might know is that he lived in the end of the 15th century. Mm -hmm. But uh, what you might not know is that his work was not known until 1797. So it had no influence on the science uh, two hundred years after his death. Really? Yeah. Huh. Not that it mattered that much because his work was not really scientific. But so are you really talking about his all
0: his, the devices he made? Because I, if I do recall correctly, he also made a book
1: about mechanics and. Oh, he did do indeed stuff. But uh, his flying devices, like he called it, I think, were not used or known till 1800. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. What he did know, though, and that's uh, quite cool. uh, I've got a quote over here. And uh, who does that remind you of? An object offers as much resistance to the air as the air does to the object. Newton, I would say. Yeah, but, the, but uh, Leonardo da Vinci was born before Newton. So he already figured that out, but that was discovered later, I guess.
0: If he would have only been smart enough to think about the mechanics.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, no, but the guy did so so
0: many things. I mean, oh, it's impre- really impressive.
1: Yeah, da Vinci had uh, like, uh, who was it? A few episodes ago, we were talking about a guy who also had like 10 professions. Oh, by the way. Oh wait, yeah, so wait,
0: who were you talking about now? (laughs) Galileo or Da Vinci? Ah, Da Vinci. Oh, I thought you were talking about Galileo.
1: Galileo, Uh,
0: did he do stuff as well actually? Wrote a book about mechanics and made all sorts of observations about this
1: guy. I'm totally confusing two people there now. Oops. Oops. (laughs) Now that Vinci as well had made advances in like a lot of fields. Let me Google him real quick. I'm uh, looking at this Wikipedia page, but it's all art. It is. Oh wait, scientific studies. Let's see. Uh, anatomy. Uh, inventor, painter, sculptor, scientist, uh, mathematics, engineer.
0: Yeah, engineering. So all his devices were still considered scientific in the sense of engineering. Yeah, right. Right. Okay, cool.
1: Anyways, his ideas were quite interesting. Maybe you know about that. He had the the sort of glider. Yeah. Also had was a rotational device, which was also tested by MythBusters, if I remember correctly. Hmm. But I'm not 100% certain about that. Anyway, uh, like I said, it was not really scientific, so it did not work.
0: Okay, so then, then what's the next step? Because we already made a jump from, like, what, 2000 before to 500 after, and now we're already
1: 1700s? Uh, 1500, actually. But Yeah, okay. Yeah, those were all cool ideas, but they were not really feasible to, to carry man. So we're talking now about uh, some modern thoughts, like the lighter-than-air thought. And uh, I want to talk about Francesco Lana de Terzi. I think that's his name. He's Italian. And what he was thinking about is a copper foil made into a sphere uh, containing a vacuum. So what you would do is make a near perfect sphere out of, uh, out of copper, uh, pump the air out of it, and that would have a lower density than air. So that would make it fly. That makes sense, right? Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, what he did not think about, though, is how to make a near-perfect sphere, because <laughs> even with modern technology, we cannot do that.
0: Yeah, also trying to get a vacuum in that sphere, because I, I, I suppose you need a pretty thick material to keep the vacuum inside, and then you can't already float anymore.
1: Yeah, that's indeed a problem. You need, like, like a foil, like, a really, really thin material, but you also need to... To keep its structural integrity, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, like all sorts of things. It was a good idea, but not feasible again. Uh, what you just talked about, balloons, like the myth you you were talking about. Mm-hmm. That is actually a whole step further. Uh, in 1783, the, the hot air balloons were introduced. They not only used hot air, but also hydrogen. And that stopped actually the building jumping. Do you know why? Um... No? Uh, well, they started jumping from balloons. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not much better, but uh, it's uh, correct, I think. But
0: did they even manage to
1: fly down from buildings? No, like, <laughs> but, but now you could jump from way higher, oh, man. which is definitely a smart idea, right? Pe- people are stupid. <laughs> yep, TLDR, people are stupid. <laughs>
0: But okay, so then we got balloons, so people die from jumping off balloons, and then hopefully that stops.
1: Again, not recommended. Yes. Yeah, so um, one thing that looks like a balloon, but is actually a bit different, an airship, like for example a Zeppelin. Yes. First introduced in 1852, so that's already 80 years after the balloons, started getting developed as well. First flight by Giffard. Do you know what his first name was? No, no. Henry. Oh, Henry Ford. The, the guy from Ford. No, Henry Giffard. Giffard. Oh, Giffard. Ah. G-I-F-F-A-R-D. Another Henry, yes. This trend needs to keep coming. <laughs> yep. That was the only reason I mentioned him. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty... So that was uh, lighter than air, but uh, if you think about a modern airplane, it's definitely heavier than air. But uh, you need to be, well, a bit smarter, I guess. So uh, Tito Livio Burettini was uh, the first to create a model with a four fixed glider wings. Like um, an aircraft. You've got uh, two wings on both sides and they were fixed. So you don't imitate a bird anymore. You don't flap with the wings. You have just four fixed glider wings. And what he did actually is he managed to successfully lift a cat yeah. in 1648. <laughs> poor cat. So yeah, poor cat. But that's... <laughs> 350 years ago, that's quite impressive, you know? Okay, yeah, that's... Yeah. It's, he, it's still only a cat, but even then... well, it's a start. He promised that uh, only the most minor injures, injuries would result from landing the craft. Uh, well, okay. uh, so, I guess safety engineering was a thing back then, but not really. On
0: an unrelated note, cats can actually fall from pretty tall heights and still land safely. Destin did Ooh, a, I saw a
1: GIF about that uh, earlier today. Oh, really? It will be in the show notes, but also the one you're talking about right now, right? Yeah, so Destin
0: did an uh, episode about that on Smarter Every Day. And he uh, talked about it as well on his uh, podcast. No dumb questions.
1: How they uh, managed to flip around, right? Yes. And how they always land on four feet. I have seen that one. Yeah, and also why they
0: can then uh, fall from pretty tall heights without injury. Or minor injury. Interesting mechanics. Yeah. Yeah, if you, if you want to know how it works, I can't remember, so you gotta
1: watch the video. It's uh, in the show notes. And although you might be the king of uh, educational YouTube videos, do you know who the king is of, uh, of airplanes? Oh, well, the father of airplanes, like he's called. Uh, it's uh, Sir George Cayley. Oh, I thought about the brothers' right, but that's
0: too. Yeah, we're coming
1: to that. We're getting a bit close, actually. Okay. So, George Cayley did uh, did some heavy research in how to scientific understand the principles of flight, of bird flight, actually. And what he did, he also conducted some scientific experiments considering aerodynamic drag and uh, streamlining, and all those those basic experiments needed for the brothers' right to. To get, uh, to get the first airplane.
0: Yeah, so that's uh, to me pretty interesting how many things come together with an, uh, with an airplane. It's, it's like mechanics, uh, uh, aer- aerodynamics, um, material science. Very complicated. Yeah, and all these things were needed before the Brothers Wright could even start to
1: make a proper model. Yeah, because the brothers Wright were born a bit earlier than the 1900s. They started developing their, their aircraft in the 1900s. But uh way before that, the steam engine was already de- invented. Because in 1842, the first motorized, well, it's not technically a glider anymore. But a sort of uncontrolled glider was motorized by a guy called Hansen. And even uh, six years after that, this one was not motorized, by the way, also by uh, the guy I just mentioned, Sir George Cayley, he even managed to, uh, to glide a, a small boy. Okay, I, I hope that was not, a, not his
0: kid or anything. Uh, no, it was a local boy from the village. Ah, okay. His name?
1: Unknown. Was, was it voluntary basis? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I would. Uh, I could imagine it was not actually. Hmm. Anyway, you were talking about the the Wright brothers, and like I said, they started developing their aircraft in the nineteen hundreds. The first one was actually exactly in the year uh, nineteen hundred, and their second one as well, if I remember correctly. But they both failed, actually. Both gliders, just uh, well, they they couldn't fly. Hmm. Well. Wow. Yeah, what they, what they tried to do is, uh, made a controllable glider so they could, uh, they could steer, they could maintain their height if, if they, uh, if they wanted it to. So what they did, and that's why I think, uh, those, those two, those two brothers, Orville and Wilbur, are actually the, the fathers of, uh, of, um, aviation. Cause what they did is they made 200 different designs. They built a wind tunnel. And they they just experimented wow. with uh, w- with all those things and yeah they corrected drag and lift calculations so they could make the perfect perfect glider. So their uh, third test in 1902, which was controlled, did flew, did fly. I mean, man, you I I never
0: thought about that 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 you would need so many uh, iterations. But it makes a whole lot of sense, of course, because you just keep trying and trying until you got a working design. But that they
1: did this only in two years, that's that's pretty impressive. It is. It is. I had also in mind that they just made a, I don't know, glider, and they tried it, and they succeeded, and poof, they were the first <laughs> men to fly. But uh, they did work, like,
0: really hard to to yeah. do this. I mean, that's, that's uh, never really how designing works, of course, but you just never really think about it. No, it's just what I had in mind, but
1: it's total nonsense if you even think about it. The their first successful flight, the, the third one uh, they tested, that they uh they flew for twelve seconds, thirty-seven meters, which means eleven kilometers per hour. Which is quite impressive, actually. Eleven kilometers per hour and still flying. Yeah, I mean that that's um
0: even compared to uh, for example, electric planes, which we will get to uh
1: you know, during my part, but yeah that that's pretty good. Yeah, it is. It is. In the same day they also tested a few uh uh, they did uh, a few other tries, and their record of the day was 260 meters, which they flew in a bit less than one minute. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah quite that, impressive. That's that's already way better. Yeah, they flew at six meters high to uh, to make sure they did not uh, I don't know crash and uh, injure themselves. Die. <laughs> yeah, die okay. indeed. Yeah, the flights were witnessed by uh three coastal coastal life saving crewmen, the Wikipedia page says. Uh a local businessman and a boy from the village. Also a I did boy. not know why, uh yeah, I did not know why they had to spe- specifically mention that. But uh
0: Maybe so he could tell all his friends how cool these guys are and then like spread the
1: legend about these guys. That could be true. Yeah, that could be it. He, uh, what is quite interesting though is that uh a German called Weisskopf, uh he moved to America, so he changed his name to Whitehead, which <laughs> exactly <laughs> means the same thing. Yep. He claims to be the first one to have a controllable uh working aircraft. But uh he, he just could not prove it. Nobody saw it. And uh a few others made claims as well. Weisskopf is the the one with the most viable claim, I think. But um I think we can say the the brothers Wright were the first one to to successfully have a controllable glider. Quite awesome, right?
0: Yeah, pretty cool. And from there on, it was uh, still so many more improvements that, that brought us to today. Yeah, what helped uh, was uh, the
1: first World War. The first what? The World War. Oh, World War One. Yes. Yes, of course, because uh, twelve years later, 1914. Well, airplanes were already used. They were used for spying, uh, bombing, and uh, they started developing guns on aircraft, which is, uh, I
0: guess, quite useful for military purposes. Yeah, people never change, do they? They see a nice invention and they think, "Hmm, how can we kill people with this?"
1: Yahoo! <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah, it's, it's it is quite useful, though. Um, yeah, of course, it it, it brought or it, uh, yeah, brought us a whole lot of improvements on the design. Uh, and yeah, because
1: yeah. Uh, in those uh, four years of uh, of war, uh, airplanes got developed quite rapidly because uh, the first transatlantic flight nonstop from New York to Paris, that's almost 6,000 kilometers, was in 1927. That's like 25 years after the first flight, <laughs> and uh, you can already fly 6,000 kilometers, wow. which is... Mind blowing, you know,
0: yeah, that's that's how many more times the distance that the brothers right, right first flew.
1: I mean, I mean, that was like 37 meters, so you gotta divide this to <laughs> six hundred six thousand kilometers is 6 million. I lost the zeros, <laughs> yeah, 6 million meters divided by 37 equals uh 126,000 times further. In wow. 25 years, And it's oh, impressive.
0: And imagine uh, if the if the, like the fuel used would scale linearly with uh, the the miles flown, it would be immense. Like how big this thing would have to be. But they made such nice improvements that they either increased the efficiency of the motors or the design of the airplane, so it needed less fuel. Yeah,
1: it's wow. It's really cool. Yeah, wow. That's the that's the only word you can <laughs> say, I guess. Wow. But then the Second World War came around, and uh, military aircraft got developed further. One uh, aircraft named the the Lancaster. I do not know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Actually, quite interesting. It was quite uh, was used for uh, transporting military objects, but because it was quite large. After the Second World War, the the airplane was used for commercial aviation yeah. because it could store several people as well. I read that as well.
0: That in like the nineteen fifties, the first generation of airplanes was m- partly uh, refurbished military planes. Quite smart, actually. You had no use for them anyway, so yeah. Why not try to fly people with them? It's maybe not that safe, but you know,
1: gotta start somewhere. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Just like the Concorde, which was uh, developed in. 1976, you know, the, yes. the commercial aircraft which can fly faster than the than sound. Yeah, I'm going I'm to still talk about that one as well. So, yeah, go ahead. It was, uh, well, where I wanted to quit anyway. But what I wanted to mention is the Concorde was obviously not the first plane to, to surpass the, the sound barrier. That's it was f- actually just after the Second World War in 1947 by Charles Elwood Jaeger. Was it, Yeager. Was it uh, the MiG? No, the Bell X-1. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fun fact, though, Charles L. Wood Yeager is still alive today. Oh, really? Yeah, he was the, the first. The first confirmed, actually. And then one, uh, one very, very important thing when you're talking about aviation is 1961. Yuri Gagarin, do you know him? Yeah, he's the astronaut, right? Cosmonaut. Yep. He was the first one to go into space. And I think that's a whole other topic. But yeah space it flight. is aviation <laughs> technically uh, so i just wanted to mention him hmm. and uh 1961 first man to space 1976 first uh commercial aircraft uh the concorde which uh surpassed the sound barrier and you already feel that the improvements are coming close to today and that's where i wanted to quit actually because uh you know what a modern plane looks like and I. Uh, what will it uh, continue to look like? That's the question,
0: of course. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to pick up right where you ended because the Concorde will uh, need some introduction first. Because I wanted to start off my segment with the question but what do you expect from a future airplane? What would you think could be um, possible improvements made? Okay, what you started the
1: episode with is that um, an airplane has quite some, needs, needs quite some fuel. So that is one improvement you could think about. What I would also want is faster faster getting to my destination mm-hmm. more people, but also more space of course yeah, okay I think those 2 aren't uh counterintuitive or how do well, you say i i mean
0: at some point you you don't really have uh i mean if you make the airplane bigger, you also need more fuel, and with more fuel, you get heavier, so you need again more fuel to take up the heavier plane. So yeah, that doesn't converge
1: always to one solution. Nope, it is not. But I, I guess that's it. What did you think about? You already introduced electric flights, I think. Yes.
0: So in well fuel efficiency or alternative fuel sources are indeed one thing that I thought about um, faster is indeed also one thing that I thought about and uh, maybe safer as well. Uh, they are already pretty safe, of course. Indeed, so we'll get to that. But uh, but first off, faster. I mean, what happened to Concorde that it stopped in 2003? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I I know the answer, but uh,
1: it's not a fun thing to talk about, I guess. No, okay, but I mean, what, what was the problem with Concorde? Yeah, they were not safe enough, right? They uh, What was it? They had some uh, major crashes and also uh, when you go to the Sound barrier you get that massive boom behind it yes, which is not that nice mm-hmm.
0: So uh, indeed uh, there were, there were, I think there are two were two problems with Concorde. one indeed was the, the safety it, it was not that safe compared to other aircrafts but also economically I think it didn't do so well people or I'm not sure who manufactured it. Let me look that up, but at least...
1: I think it was British Airways. Yeah, together and, with Air France. Uh, air France. I think so, yeah. It was a
0: collaboration between those two. Anyway, there were quite a few Concords ordered by aircraft companies. Although, um, with I think there was indeed one incident at an air show. And after that, like all these orders got cancelled. And in the end, only what? 40 or so? Oh, wait. No, only 20 were built. So
1: yeah, the air show is the perfect place to market your, your aircraft. And exactly. if it fails at that point, you know, your business is crude. Yeah. But even then they still
0: uh, sold 20 aircraft. So it's not that bad. And that's also, I think, why it's even managed to get to 2003. But yeah, there are some problems with going faster and you already mentioned the, the sonic boom. And this is a, just a really nasty thing to deal with. Uh, the way Concorde dealt with it is to just uh, go first to fly over the ocean and then speed up to supersonic speed. And then the sonic boom is above ocean, but nobody cares.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that if you all are uh, flying from London or Paris, which were the the headquarters of course of the two mentioned uh, carriers, then you could just easily fly to the North Sea or the the Atl- Atlantic Ocean is it called, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And start going like really fast over there.
0: Yeah. So indeed, and that and that worked. But even then, there are some more problems because there is this uh, range transition range that is called the transonic range, and it uh, goes from like 0.88 or Mach 0.88 to Mach 1. And what happens there in that range of speed is that the uh, drag coefficient exponentially grows until it is like, I think, four times higher than at lower speeds, and then it drops off again. But even then, after Mach 1.2, I think, um, it's still uh, still quite higher than on lower speeds.
1: I did not know that, actually. But what I did know is that for... uh For ships, you've got the exact same phenomenon. You've got the most economic speed, which is like 0.8 or 0.9, what they call the limit speed, I think it was in English. It's not an actual limit because a speedboat can go through it, which is something like going higher than Mach 1. It's like uh, passing the sound barrier. But ships also have the phenomenon that just before you reach that limit speed, a drag significantly increases.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that makes sense because uh, like air and water, it's basically the same principles, except like the the density and the viscosity is maybe a bit different, but same principles apply. Uh Also, one thing that makes it harder to fly these things is that the lift to drag ratio changes when you go faster. And this means that you need more fuel or higher thrust to go at these higher speeds. And that also makes it pretty damn expensive to fly a Concorde. I
1: thought uh, lift was also in the order of speed squared. But I could be mistaken about that. Let me Google that. I want to know stuff, you know? Yeah. Lift is indeed also velocity squared, But maybe those things change when you're talking about high velocities.
0: Uh, Let's see. The Concorde had a very high drag. A lift to drag ratio of about 4 at slow speed. But it's traveled at high speed for most of the flight, yeah, okay, so because you're designing your wings in such a way that it has a it has a very high lift to drag ratio at higher speeds, it might be very well the case that at lower speeds it
1: has a low lift to drag ratio. Yeah, right. you engineer your your wings for a a certain speed, and when you do not have that speed, uh, effects could be a whole lot different than you actually want of course. Yes, and also, uh, like the fuselage is also designed
0: to these parameters. And since your, your speed range is so big, it would be optimal to change this the shape of the fuselage, but that would also introduce many more other problems that are not really worth it.
1: Yeah, what you want, of course, is the minimal fuelage you can have for the whole trip. If that means it's less optimal at the start and at the beginning, I mean, at the start and at the end, then, well, it's it's a downside, but you have to take that in mind. And if you can optimize it for for the thousands of kilometers uh, transatlantic that is the part you want to optimize. yeah exactly it's
0: it's optimized for the biggest part of the of the flight and that that makes a whole lot of sense. But yeah these things cause uh, the Concorde to be actually pretty expensive to fly and uh, do you have any idea how, how, how much it takes to fly from New York to London?
1: You mean in dollars? Yeah with today's airplanes? Or tickets. Oh, I've looked about. Uh, I've looked about that. Uh, I think it's a thousand
0: dollars a round trip, maybe a bit more, a thousand euros. Yeah, so a- around like thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars, something like that. Quite expensive, but the Concorde was way more expensive, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. So do a to do a round trip, it would cost you twelve thousand dollars. Okay,
1: so that's like <laughs> ten times as 10 much. Ten times more expensive. Yeah. yeah, and it's like two or three times faster.
0: Yeah. So you can go from, I think, London to New York in three hours instead of the six to seven hours it takes. So yeah, about twice as fast. Not quite impressive though. Yeah. But even then it's so, and, and that's also the reason why I think not many aircraft companies care about this is because it's not very marketable to, to the passenger to sell a very fast plane when you, at, that comes at the cost of like doubling your price or wait, no, 10 folding your price. You would only do
1: that if you were like really rich or you had the money and wanted to have the experience. Yeah, exactly. So there
0: are, and that's another thing that that, that strike me as pretty interesting. There is actually only one like uh, comparable airplane to the Concorde. There never has been any other yeah airplane like it. So the, uh, the other one was, uh, it flew by the way, also only for one year. It was the
1: Tupolev TU-144. Okay, and that could uh, could it go faster than the Concorde? What uh, what I have to what do I have to take in mind? Let me see. It had a
0: cruise speed of around two thousand kilometers, so Mach two. Uh-huh. Let me look that up. Concorde has a cruise speed of uh, Mach two point zero two, so it was faster. Okay, that's quite impressive. But I think it how ha- or it carried less passengers because Concorde could carry one hundred twenty eight passengers, whereas the Tu one four four could only carry fifty five passengers.
1: What you might not know, though, is uh, I came across this a couple of weeks ago. Um, that is a startup called Boom Supersonic. Yes, I actually have that in my notes. Which note. does want to make the flights affordable again. But you were going to talk about that. I, I,
0: well, uh, I was just briefly going to mention that indeed. There, so so um, the Concorde stopped in 2003. Uh, there don't seem to be... Uh, that many successors, but indeed there are a couple of projects that seek to like restore the speed of the Concorde on a on an economical basis or yeah economical viable way and indeed the XB1 or so-called baby boom is the first demonstrator plane um, but it's still let's see it's one-third the size of the actual plane and it should fly supersonically in 2019 and even then it's a question when
1: it will be available to the public i've got a picture of it and it does look quite good man it's like the the tesla of aircraft yeah indeed and there
0: is also another uh, another one that's the the spike s 512 it it houses a few less passengers I think it's only 12 so it's re- or 18 it's so it's really a business plane but yeah the maximum speed should still be about mark
1: 1.8 which is a bit slower though that the Concorde did mm-hmm. yeah but right? even then if, it, if it's a whole lot safer it's still worth it of course but uh, like you said uh, it does need a lot more fuel so I it's hard to market that I think um,
0: yeah indeed uh, so we'll, we'll see if the airplane of the future will be faster. at least the reason why like normal air, uh, airliners fly at, at what's it about 980 kilometers per second is, is because that's at the lower bound of the transonic range. So
1: it's uh, like uh,
0: 0.88 yeah mark, uh, max 0. Right. 0.88 yeah so it's a bit that's about 980 kilometers per, uh, per hour. Yeah, the most economical speed. Yeah. And if it, it makes sense. Indeed. Um, so that's it about faster, whole lot of troubles, uh, and yeah, probably we're not going to see a much faster plane in the foreseeable future, at least on the large scale for many people. And yeah, so the other problem is, uh, or well, problem, uh, what well, would be nice if, 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 if aircrafts could be safer, uh, but I think I'm going to skip this because. The too-long-didn't-read is the aircrafts are already pretty safe and can't really make them much safer.
1: Well, you can, but... If you want to see a uh, a GIF of something that looks not really safe and is quite recent, you should check the show notes. I do not have it over here, but it's quite disturbing to watch. Mm, okay. Just a tip, uh, do not watch it just before you're about to enter a plane.
0: <laughs> yeah, t- but still, maybe, to, maybe it's still interesting to... Uh, to name a couple numbers, because this episode is not so much about all the technology. It's more about grasping the idea why uh, aircrafts have not been changed so much. And uh, if you're if you're talking about safety, in for example in 2014, the global jet accident rate was 0.23, which is the equivalent means- of one accident for every 4.4 million flights.
1: So okay okay and when you translate it to kilometers do you know what that
0: means So these numbers are actually pretty hard to compare because uh, there are different like metrics to uh, to measure this also accident rate and death rate hull loss all these sort of things make it kind of hard to compare to give you another perspective let me tell you this between 2000 and 2010 in the United States the number of deaths per passenger mile was about 0.2 deaths per 10 billion passenger miles. Uh, While for driving, the rate was 1.5 per 100 million vehicle miles for only 2000, which is uh, 150 deaths per 10 billion miles. Whereas airplanes only had 0.2 deaths per 10 billion passenger miles. Oh, that's quite significant, right? That's like factor, what was it? So we had a death rate of 150 deaths per 10 billion miles for driving divided by 0.2 deaths per 10 billion passenger miles for aviation equals a factor of 750. Oh, that's quite good. Yeah, exactly. Also, yeah, if, if, if you want to make aircraft safer, there are so many things that you could improve the reliability of the, of the sensors, uh, the mechanics on the ground, to give them proper training, the pilots, of course, so they can handle exceptional situations. There is like even cockpit design matters when it comes to safety, because some accidents have been caused by
1: confusion from the pilots. Oh, that's, that's awesome. you you your design of the cockpit can influence that. There's gotta be some weird psychology, or how do you call that? Yeah, well,
0: so um, in, in the 1970s, they introduced this principle of the glass cockpits. And that mean, meant that more instruments, I think got digitalized, but this also meant that the pilots can suffer from like data overload or information overload. And especially in dangerous situations, it's pretty easy to lose your cool and then still make sense out of all the data that's coming towards you.
1: Yeah, you already noticed that when you're gaming, like for example, uh, Age of Empires, when uh, multiple people are attacking you from both sides, you do not know what to do. It's just a data overload. And if you would look at it closely, you know what to do, right?
0: Absolutely. But I I mean, I'm not a pilot and that's a good thing because if something would happen, I would totally panic and probably crash the airplane. So... (laughs)
1: Just like you do when you're playing Age of exactly
0: so good le- good thing I'm not a pilot indeed and even and so that that's already pretty specific, but to get even more specific is checklist design because when un- or when exceptional situations happen or like accidents happen, pilots usually have a checklist of what they have to do to fix an error or something like that. but even there, there can be confusion in the checklist when like steps on what to do are not clear, even when you have seconds before disaster, like
1: literally seconds. I uh, was watching Mayday, or like it's called in Europe, it's uh, air crash investigation. Yeah. And uh, uh, this episode was about um, a crash. I do not remember which one it was. Anyway, all the pilots were Chinese and they did not know how to speak English. They just knew the terms. They, they needed to fly an aircraft, like they've got a few signals, uh, what you have to say to act, the, the air management folks, how do you, how uh, do you call oh, that?
0: Air traffic control?
1: Definitely, that one. Ah. But they did not know how to, how to, to say things in, in English, so they had a problem, they took the checklists. They did not understand a single <laughs> word, and um, uh, that was a
0: problem. Yeah, so, but, but that's, that's not at the checklist design. That's more that pilots should know English, not at the basic level.
1: No, but that's just a fun fact so I, ah, uh, yeah. I knew. Uh,
0: and also, like, uh, what steps to do when. Um, sometimes it, w- it makes way more sense to do one of the last steps first, but checklist designers need to think about this, about what is probab- the most probable cause. Uh, and what can you do to like fix that cause? And yeah, th- that's just really complicated to think about because you also need to understand how people think, how people read and what like what problem belongs to what solution and so on. So it, yes, yeah, it's, it's, man, it's hugely complicated. It is, definitely. So yeah, luckily a lot of people have uh, thought about this. Also luckily, or well, maybe sadly one of the ways to... Uh, make safety better is by looking at accidents and say, how can we improve this? But it also means it needs to go wrong once before we learn from that. But yeah, let's hope at least that, that uh, the, the mortality rate stays the same or goes down. Let's hope my plane doesn't crash tomorrow. <laughs> yes. And before we make bridge, because that would have been a good one, I still wanted to talk about electric because I, I'm hugely fascinated by uh,
1: by electric planes I am as well. What is the world record at the moment for longest distance flight for electric planes? Actually, around the globe. Around the globe. Yes, like
0: non-stop. Uh, kind of non-stop because of course the the, the uh, limiting factor here is the pilot. A pilot can't sit in a plane for longer than I don't know a couple weeks. I guess if you take.
1: Okay, so you need a a couple of pilots, but that's not practical as well. Yeah, so tell me how did they do it? How did they do it? How did they do yeah, it? Yeah, so funny that you asked because I
0: looked into this and um, that was actually I wanted to give some prototypes first, but yeah, but yeah, let's dive right into this project called Solar Impulse. It's a uh, privately financed uh, project. One of the guys is uh, Bentrand Picard, P- Picard, Deutsch, no, Swiss, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay, and uh, the Solar Impulse 2, I think. It was the Solar Impulse 2. At least it, that was like completed in 2014, and on March 9th, 2050, they began. These two guys began to circumnavigate the globe with the Solar Impulse 2. Uh, they started from Abu Dhabi, and I think in 17 stages they wanted to navigate the globe. Uh, I think the longest stage was from Japan to Hawaii. That was the longest. Which is how many kilometers? Oh, I wouldn't know, but a lot. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll look this up in the meantime. Um, yeah, sure. And uh, they they wanted to complete, I'm not sure. They, they were planning, I think, to do it in, in in like a year or so. But sadly, they had a problem, a technical problem with uh, some of the batteries. And uh, they had to, uh, to stay on the ground for a couple of months to fix the airplane. Uh, but it took them, in the end, 16 months. Before. To fix the airplane, or oh, to, no, to to, f- to finish oh, the circumnavigation.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was already a bit uh, surprised. Hawaii to Japan, by the way, is uh, six thousand four hundred kilometers. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's quite quite far. Mm-hmm. And also, the, the statistics of this this airplane are are,
0: are pretty interesting. It's um, their, Uh, the cruise speed is uh, ninety kilometers per hour during the day which is pretty fast, Uh, 60 kilometers per hour during the night, because they want to save power that way. Of course. And their maximum speed is 140 kilometers per hour. It's not that fast. It's not that fast, but it's still pretty fast compared to, for example, another prototype I looked into was the NASA Pathfinder, which was one of the first full electric planes. And this guy flew at only 24 kilometers per hour. How are you able to able to fly at that speed? Well, the brother's right. They uh, did it at 11
1: kilometers per hour, right? Yeah, but like for 20 meters.
0: Yeah. Okay. But so, but, uh, so the Pathfinder, like more, it's more gliding than flying almost. And, and that makes sense, right? Because. The, the the engines have to be very power efficient. And your left a uh, lift to drag ratio has to be like really high. Yeah, and this is the very reason that these guys have usually a huge wingspan for their actual size, because the wingspan of the the Pathfinder was thirty seven meters.
1: But you also need that to make space for the for the electric cells, right? Uh, yeah, of course, for the solar
0: cells. And um, talking about solar cells, also this is by the way a video of the, the Helios taking off. And notice how wobbly it is. Let me check that
1: out. Also how big it is, but especially how wobbly Holy the- Holy cow. <laughs> when you think about the uh, the cockpit, if that's the size of an actual human, even a bit larger, of course. A little bit, yeah. Those wings are insane. Yeah, they are. I think they're, yeah, they're, they're usually huge. But you're right, it's indeed so wobbly. <laughs> Which does make sense, though, because uh, deflection is like the fourth power of the length. Yeah. And if it's if it's that thin, then you would have to have so many deflect, uh, so much deflection.
0: So yeah, this thing was unmanned, and what to me was pretty surprising is the weight. It's only fifty kilograms. It is. <laughs> yeah. So if you. I would, could lift that. If you would put me on it, then it would like double in weight. <laughs> triple you mean Nah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so yeah that, that but of course you need uh you need a very lightweight because and this is what i wanted to get to is um solar cells i know it's a little bit of an uh sidetrack but for to get some numbers in your head the um like the the watts per square meter that get to the surface from the sun is 1300. Sixty watts per square meter is that a lot i i do not know what yeah, it... yeah okay I'll, I'll um if you if you keep listening then you might understand how much it is okay thirteen hundred sixty is that yeah okay and um the the theoretical limit of solar cells is forty nine percent like you can't do any better than that theoretically. Oh, that
1: has to do with physics
0: yes, because physics <laughs> um okay uh so. Yeah, as a side note, the solar cells of these things are more in the order of 13%. But okay, let's assume 49%, right? Um, We have then to our disposal 670 watts per square meter. And if you take into account the best possible uh, conversion rate. Yeah, theoretical limits. Yeah, okay. And my water boiler is 1900 watts. So you need like three square meters to power my water boiler okay that's insane yeah so that's why the wingspan well partly that's why also the wingspan is so big yeah and well of course the water boiler is still a hugely inefficient thing so that is also maybe the reason why in the near future we we won't be able to carry that many passengers because improving solar cells in efficiency is already pretty hard then putting it on an airplane making sure that you have batteries so you can keep flying and then still upscale it to carry say 50 passengers that's still pretty far away
1: yeah i can imagine and you, you it's hard to use uh other techniques cause uh wind power is of course uh a bit stupid to do because mm-hmm. you would only create extra drag and there is not much else to use, I guess?
0: Um, Well, one thing that the aviation industry is looking into, like, last couple years and coming years, is, for example, biofuels. And that would already at least uh, reduce greenhouse
1: gases quite a bit. Okay, but are those as efficient as, like, diesel? Or what are they using? Kerosene. Kerosene, of course.
0: Um, Well, I'm, I'm not sure because I didn't look that much into this uh another thing for example that is already happening is to blend in biofuels so no, so only you make a certain percentage and then use I them. use a mixture of the two yes and that that's already a nice way to to make aircrafts a little bit more environmentally friendly but really the problem is is that air, air traffic is is gonna exponentially grow still and uh, I also looked this up. It's about like 2% of the global greenhouse gas emission is because of aviation. So if our airplanes are not really going to become much more uh, environmentally friendly, but the traffic is going to grow exponentially, then we have
1: a problem. Yeah, it does. Because it is a limited source and we have to take that in mind.
0: Yeah, and uh, and well, th- this is again sidetracking a bit, but if, if we we need those fuels also to produce stuff and maybe more importantly to transport goods, so we really need the fuels, which could also be uh, an airplane. But yeah, but well, so if you don't do it with airplane but with a ship, even then, you know, you need you need fuel somehow. So either we need to produce things locally, but that's uh, also not convenient because we don't have that much land, especially in the Netherlands or we need uh, green solutions to transport. But
1: okay, that's another topic. It is. It it could be uh, a topic another time, green fuelage or something. We will be discussing that. So
0: whether airplanes will become more uh, energy efficient or not, at least we'll have the globe for some 100 years uh, in advance. And by that time, you also will have the time to visit our website and uh, you, Oli, to get to entrance and hopefully, hopefully, get back in
1: good health. Um, Definitely. So, hoftechpodcast.com. Yes. Um, uh, and where? That's the most important thing. Of course. And of course, YouTube and uh, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, and all those uh, other familiar player. All the, Allah, ba, ba, and all
0: those other uh, uh, and all those it, it, other familiar places, because Oli can't speak. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to say. But it just didn't come out right.
0: <laughs> all right, thank you all for uh, for listening in, and uh, see you next time. Adios.